On Wednesdays, you may know I like to talk about wellness. Uh, that could be physical health or mental health. Well, today we will revisit a conversation I had after the Food and Drug Administration allowed hearing aids to be sold over the counter last summer. Shortly after this news, I talked with an audiologist and a researcher about how this might make hearing aids less expensive and more accessible. We also talked about changes in hearing aid technology and how to make the most of them. My guests that day were Peggy Nelson, a professor of audiology at the University of Minnesota, and Rachel Algore, an audiologist with Audiology Concepts. Now, that's a clinic in Edina. According to the FDA, nearly 30 million Americans suffer from hearing loss, but only about one-fifth use hearing aids. I started by asking Peggy, what's stopping people from choosing to get help? Certainly cost is an issue, but we also know that people in countries where there's socialized medicine, where there's really no cost to them, there's still only 30 or 40% of the people who are getting them and using them. So there are clearly more barriers than just cost. It might be stigma. It might be just the frustration of trying to get to services that are that are far from where they live. Uh, might be some trepidation about the technology, not being willing to try something brand new and, and being a little fearful of that. Now, Rachel, you are an audiologist who works in a clinic. So how do you think the availability of over-the-counter hearing aids um, will affect you and your colleagues and, and people who may be curious and really need them? I view it as a good thing. Mm -hmm. There is an average of seven years before somebody comes into a clinic after realizing that they're having hearing difficulty. Seven years. Seven years is the average. Mm -hmm. So what I would hope that this direct-to-consumer is doing is lessening that time frame. And Rachel, you use a hearing aid. And uh, tell me how that came about, because this started as a child for you. It did. So I had a benign tumor in my middle ear when I was born, and it was removed when I was a toddler. I started wearing a hearing aid in second grade, mm. and I was the hearing aid user that wore it much more off than on. Mm -hmm. And why was it off? I didn't want to be different. Right. Especially right. as a kid going through things. I didn't want to feel different. I didn't want to look different. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't until I was halfway through my audiology like degree mm -hmm. that I finally started wearing one full time. Uh, let's go to Brooklyn Park, where one of our listeners, Marika, is on the line. Good morning, Marika. What did you want to uh, tell us about hearing aids? Uh, this conversation is so timely. It really resonates with me because I've been struggling with my mother for the last five years to get hearing aids, but it took her grandchildren standing right next to her, asking to talk with her to realize that she really had that significant hearing loss. So she went in and she got some hearing aids um, with an audiologist. She did a trial period and literally came out of that saying, it's like the world woke up. She's like, I could literally hear a skateboarder going down the street next to me, and I didn't know how much I was missing. So we're really excited about the steps she's taking. And then she got the pair, and it's the technology that is challenging her. It's the app and the phone and learning how to navigate that. She's in her early 80s, mm -hmm. very independent. Mm -hmm. And so, like, we are still navigating that question about should we go into the store? Because I know she's going to need more support, or do we invest in the higher product and also the connection with the audiologist. 
So mm-hmm. it's it's been a journey, and I'm really just curious, how will people get supported if they do the over-the-counter method? Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the app and the phone. I was like, woo, okay, uh, Marika, great phone call. Lots of uh, things to talk about uh, with that. But uh, Rachel, I'll start with you as an, as an audiologist, as someone who wears a hearing aid. What do you hear in her story? Marika finally got her mom to get her hearing tested. At first, very exciting that we were able to do the hearing test, able to do the trial. And so you can actually hear what you've been missing Mm -hmm. because you don't know what you don't know. And that's the biggest thing when people come into the clinic is, oh, I didn't realize I was missing so much. And so that story is familiar to me. And um, describe to me, what is it like? How would you describe it to someone to be hard of hearing? What is it like to experience the world that may be different than other people? Yeah, it is so person dependent for that. Um, It's not quite like glasses where things just seem a little fuzzy. It could be that your hearing is fuzzy, but it also could be a distortion that's occurring too. And so a common hearing loss is going to be a high frequency one. When you have a high frequency loss, it's the clarity that we're missing. Mm-hmm. So then it feels like people are mumbling all day, every day. And then also sometimes sounds that you don't want to hear are really loud and distracting. Yes. With the hearing aids or without? Uh, well, with the hearing aids. I've heard that, that, mm-hmm. that folks will get hearing aids, but then they, they're hearing everything. Yes. Because the brain is suddenly getting reintroduced to sound. And so it has to learn how to filter things out again, which is hard, Mm -hmm. particularly if it's been years since you've heard it all. And Marika, a final question she had was about the technology. She's got her Mm -hmm. 80-something-year-old mom uh, on a phone using an an app. So what do you want people to know about like that? What support is available um, to to help people actually be able to to be independent as they have, you know, higher quality hearing aids? I recognize the app can be a challenge, but I I recommend that Marika go back to the audiologist and, and work to simplify things. And perhaps they can use the app just for one or two things, um, get things set pretty standard on the hearing aid so she doesn't have to use it all the time. Some people, on the other hand, will want to change things all the time. They'll mm-hmm. want to be playing with the app and adjusting this and that. But I think somewhat it to pretty much stay the same just one or two times when they would turn it up or down. And I think that the audiologist can help her simplify that. Now, before I get to more of our listeners, uh, let's talk about money. Uh, Peggy, What is uh, how much does a hearing aid cost uh, if you're going through, you know, if you're not buying it over the counter? Um, does insurance cover it? Like, what, what are we talking about in terms of money here? Yeah, the hearing aids, a pair of hearing aids will cost thousands. There's a wide range that might be perhaps $2,000 for a pair, or perhaps up to $8,000 for a pair. Perhaps Rachel's got other information about that. We're hoping that over-the-counter devices will be priced at under $1,000 a pair. Um, and what we've seen in startups and, and glimpses so that we have seen of, of companies that have been on the forefront, they have been, you know, $800 for a pair or something like that. I imagine, again, there will be a wide range. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it, a big I'm, difference between a big difference. thousands and That's thousands right. and maybe under a thousand. Okay. We're, we're certainly hoping that there is that big difference, but it won't come with services. So ah, people will be on have their the box. own. That's, that's about it. Right. The box that's and the instructions. It. Some mm-hmm. instructions, probably a website. Let's take a phone call uh, in Minneapolis. Uh, Mary's on the phone. Mary, thank you for waiting. What do you want to ask or share with our guests about hearing loss? Hi. Um, I've heard so many positive things 
today. And I just want to ask for some advice for the obstinate 80-year-old who (laughs) does not feel like it's something he wants to undertake. He did undertake it once, and he didn't like it. But he's become increasingly isolated from friends and family who don't want to sit around with the TV blaring in the background, trying to have a conversation with him, or even having a phone conversation with him. It's just become so difficult to to kind of continue the relationship when he's not a fully part of a conversation. Mm. Mary, I think you speak for a lot of people with this question. And so uh, Peggy and Rachel, help me with this conversation. What are the words to use? How do we have a conversation with someone who is reluctant to get help or doesn't believe that they need help? Uh, Peggy, could you begin? Well, one thing I do is ask people directly, what's important to you? What, what do you miss? Or what would you like to see? And then try to figure out how that would could be achieved, perhaps, especially in this case where he tried something before and didn't like it, and that mm-hmm. does happen. Perhaps we need to go to simpler technology. There are some, you know, boxes to, um, to pocket talkers and things that mm-hmm. might be a simpler solution that would allow him to have the high priority conversations that he wants, and then to to say clearly we miss talking to you. Mm -hmm. Um, What can we do to try to make it easier? Mm -hmm. Rachel, anything you'd add? What are the words? What do we use? Yeah, I think it can be really powerful coming from family and friends saying, we miss talking with you. We miss engaging with you. And so hitting on that emotional side of things. Or like, we see that you're not paying attention during dinner anymore, and you missed this part of the conversation, or you missed your grandkids trying to get your attention, Mm -hmm. um, because they need you. Like, we need our grandparents. And then there are some words that we should not use with people who have hearing loss. I have in my notes here, uh, you wanted to talk about um, people saying, never mind. Oh, yes. What's the never mind? Like, how does that come into conversation? That comes from asking for repetitions. So as a person with hearing loss, there have been many times in my life where I've had to ask for repetitions. So Um, like, say that again, Angela, I didn't get that. Would you say that again? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you then said, oh, never mind, it is one of the most hurtful things for me to hear that from somebody else, because I'm genuinely interested and I want to know what's being said. I just can't figure it out. Even with my hearing aid, I still have trouble sometimes. Mm Mm-hmm. And so understanding that it's my responsibility to repeat back what I did here Mm -hmm. so that you only have to fill in the blanks. And then sometimes it's your responsibility, instead of saying the same thing, rephrase it. And uh, Peggy, in the last 30 seconds here, where do people go? What do you advise folks do or or go to to get more information about the -the over-the-counter hearing aids and uh, hearing aids that you will get from going to see an audiologist? What, What are some resources? There are some good resources online from the National Institute on Deafness and Communication Disorders. We also have the Minnesota Commission for the Deaf, Deaf, Blind, and Hard of Hearing that have resources available, and the Minnesota Academy of Audiology will, and the university clinics will as well. We're we're all discovering this together, and we want to work with people to figure out what's best for them. And sometimes it will be stick with your audiologist and go back where in sometimes, like some of your callers, I want to give it a try. So Mm -hmm. let's uh, help them give it a try. 
That was part of the conversation I had last September about the over-the-counter hearing aids now available. We talked about new technology and, and what's changed with hearing aids. My guests were Peggy Nelson, a professor of audiology at the University of Minnesota, and Rachel Al Gore, an audiologist with Audiology Concepts, which is a clinic in Edina. Now back to another conversation about wellness. Uh, That's what I talk about on Wednesdays. Do you feel like you're drinking more than you used to? I'm not talking about water. I'm talking about alcoholic beverages. Last fall, I had a conversation about excessive and dangerous alcohol use. In 2021, more than 1,000 Minnesotans died of alcohol-related deaths. And by that, I mean deaths from alcohol overdose and poisoning liver disease, and other organ damage caused by alcohol. That's a record number that doesn't even include deaths from drunk driving. That's also more than double the number of homicides and suicides in 2021 combined. Back in October, I talked with two alcohol and addiction treatment specialists about addressing excessive alcohol use and how to reduce drinking. My guests were Dr. Joseph Lee, the president and CEO of the Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation, and Peter Hayden, the founder of Turning Point, which is a North Minneapolis clinic that provides culturally specific substance use disorder treatment. Our conversation starts with Dr. Lee explaining what's happening in our brain that can lead to an addiction. Addiction is a kind of pathologic conditioning with different stages. And so the first stage is really that reward intoxication stage. And that is you use a particular substance like alcohol and the dopamine release from it starts to, in your brain, cause this imprinting and you have all these memories. And so, for example, if you're watching a football game and drinking a beer, the next time you watch a football game, you're going to think of a beer. Or if you're at home by yourself, you're going to you know, think of wine when you drink it. Or if you're talking to certain friends and you drink wine at that time, the next time you're with those friends, you're going to think about wine. That's how your brain works. That's how your brain remembers certain survival behaviors that are good for you. Once you do that enough times, though, once you take that reward away, your brain starts to feel bad and starts to miss it. And then you start to have some cravings for it. And everyone can kind of understand. I'm not saying social media is addiction. Okay, I want to say that first off. But if you've ever posted anything on social media and you've had this itch to go back to see who else has commented on it or who else has shared it, and I think we've all been we there. We do that, yeah. Yep. That, that pull that you feel, that pull of a little reward bringing you back to a certain behavior and certain cues triggering, hey, this, this behavior might solve a, a couple of problems in the here and now. I think more people now can understand the pull of addiction than ever before. But the damage of alcohol isn't just on the far end of the spectrum with uh, severe alcohol use disorder. It's, it's on all levels. You know? And so a lot of these people who pass away from fatalities, uh, accidents uh, with alcohol, they don't necessarily have severe alcohol use disorder. It may be a one-time thing. It may be, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so, so there's a platform for people to talk about the impact of alcohol on their lives and how it has really limited their free will in many ways. And people need to embrace that. We need to kind of talk about that openly so that people can get the help they need. Let me take you to my community, the African-American community and the people of color. When you can't find a job, when you're not graduating from school, high school, elementary schools and things of this nature, where are you going to get the money to take care of your family? When we look at what is going on, the the quickest thing in our community is what? The liquor store. You can walk to the liquor store. Then if you get that liquor, you can go and you can say, oh, poor me, 
or you can just, for a minute of time, have a good time. That's the problem. Come next year, we'll celebrate my 50th year of sobriety. I had to get out of the community in which I lived. What I mean by that is that if I had stayed in my community, didn't have the opportunity for treatment and things of this nature, I would have just been walking down to the liquor store. Fortunately, I went to a program like Hazelton. I gave up who I was in order to stay sober. The beauty of that gave me an opportunity with Henry Sullivan to create Turning Point, and we've served over 30,000 men and women since then. Uh, I'm curious, what moves someone to action? What have you found? What gets someone to pick up the phone, to make their appointment, to actually come in to seek help, whether it's Hazleton or Turning Point, anywhere? What what have you seen? In my case, it wasn't that I one day woke up and said, you know, I'm just drinking too much, and I think I'm going to call this number and get myself together. It's always traumatic. For me, I I had an accident. Someone else, the wife or the partner, will say, I can't take it anymore. You've got to go. It's what's important to you. Many people just, and they used to say back in the day, you hit the bottom Mm-hmm. I hit rock bottom. <laughs> I hit rock bottom. I mm-hmm. changed my life. Mm-hmm. Well, it doesn't always happen that way. It's uh, the rock hits you. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so in answering this question, Angela, is basically, I feel you have to be forced mm-hmm. to go to treatment. What have you seen, Dr. Lee? What brings people in? What, what moves folks to action to get help? Well, I think Dr. Hayden speaks truth from his experience. And, and the good news, though, is that the banner has really been broadened. The, mm-hmm. the on-ramp to getting help is so wide now. You know, you can do it through telehealth. You can do it through an app. You can give us a call. You can do a phone assessment. There's so many ways to meet people where they're at. You do not have to hit rock bottom. You don't even have to have a severe substance use disorder. You might have a mild or moderate. As long as you recognize, hey, this is this is controlling me sometimes instead of I'm controlling this, right? When you get mm-hmm. that kind of, huh? And it's a combination of internal things that tell you something's not right and usually some external concern expressed by family members, loved ones, your work that catapults someone into care. And then we specialize in that kind of therapy. We've been training our clinicians for eight years in this called motivational interviewing where you help people with this change no change decision because everything people say kind of comes down to this change, no change. And if it was diabetes or heart disease, we wouldn't look at it in this absolute way. But sometimes people get into success failure and that's not how it is. You keep moving up slowly. And then, and then the other thing I want to say about John and the, and the trauma, Mm -hmm. of course, external circumstances matter. Of course, trauma matters. You know, the pandemic clearly had an impact externally on people's using behaviors, but it's gotta be an and and not an or discussion, because if you take that if you take that logic too far, people with good hearts will try to explain away addiction as a simple byproduct of things like poverty and impo- you know uh, lack of resources and trauma. Yes. And I'm telling you, addiction exists regardless of those external variables. So it's an and discussion, not an or. Let's get to the phones and talk with our listeners. We have Pathias on the line uh, with us from Columbia Heights. Good morning to you. And, and what did you want to share with us? I'm an alcoholic, and it's been hard for me as, like, I'm originally from Zimbabwe. thing is that, like, I'm having a hard time finding a community that that can understand, like, basically my trauma mm-hmm. and also my condition. 
being an alcoholic. And you hear he says he's having a hard time, and he's originally from Zimbabwe. So, sure. Dr. Hayden, what would you say to, to Sure. What he's saying is what we deal with every day. And I, I can even feel him on, on this radio. I mean, he mm-hmm. needs... He needs help, but he needs an opportunity to know there's other people who can help him take those steps. Uh, let's take another phone call. And Blaine, we have Gwen on the phone. Gwen, thank you for waiting. And what did you want to share or ask? I am wondering what advice the doctors here have for teenagers, because right. we are seeing a huge uptake in teenagers and even children who have gained access to these substances and now really do have a problem. Great question, Gwen. Dr. Lee? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. You know, there's longstanding research on use patterns for young people. And I will say we have made some gains. Okay, so there's, there's some decreases in use, especially with prescription opioids and some other things like that. But there are some concerning rises in, in, in the use of vaping in the past few years, uh, hallucinogen use, and marijuana. And when you track it, what you find is that young people, as savvy as they are, as smart as they are about the world, uh, they are uh, sometimes in their behaviors a caricature of kind of modern adult society. And so the kinds sure. of substances we hype up, the kind of substances that we say are safer than other substances, and we do this for commercialization purposes and whatnot, young people kind of subconsciously take that in and, and they vote with their feet. And so they, they no longer think certain substances are as dangerous as others, and then use goes up. And so what I try to do in working with young people is I really look at free will because I go back to this point of like, hey, all this commercialization, these substances, they promise you a particular image, you know, that you're going to have this kind of life. But at the end of the day, it's going to take away your ability to form your own identity okay. and have your own choices. It actually offers the opposite of what it promises in the front end. And when young people kind of make that connection, and uh, then, then they can start to make choices. And, and young people can make really wise decisions about their life. And uh, they have really good insights as to what's going on. You just have to kind of guide them to that conversation where they see it as this isn't uh, an outside pressure, someone asking me to do something. This is if I really look at my life and my trajectory. That was my conversation from last October with Dr. Joseph Lee, the president and CEO of the Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation, and Peter Hayden, the founder of Turning Point, which is a North Minneapolis clinic that provides culturally specific substance use disorder treatment. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.